Okay, guys, this is the last stretch, and I promise it will be worth the extra 30 minutes and a bit of traffic. Our last speaker for the day is Alan Quinn. So he studied computer science at the University of Cambridge way before Excel was even invented, but he swiftly moved into management consulting, and he worked at Accenture for the better part of his youth across the mining, oil and gas, transportation and insurance industries. He then moved into discovery in its UK and South African businesses. He took his toolkit into banking and has spent the past years in the asset finance and transactional banking space, where he has been described by his minions, me being chief minion, and superiors as the creative genius, often trading out new ideas faster than any bank could ever possibly implement. He now leads all collaborative efforts between West Bank and FMB within First Rank Group. Please welcome Alan to the stage. I'm the last thing between you and going home. I'm conscious and unaware of that. I, I'll probably cut out a few of these slides um, so that we go through it. Look, I'm not an actuary. I'm the farthest thing you can get from an actuary. I'm crap with details and I'm crap with figures, but I do work with a lot of actuaries. The other thing I say is, is just a, a sort of boilerplate statement. Please don't, I was hired to think differently in a bank. I know that's an oxymoron, but that I, because I think differently, please don't hold West Bank or First Rand accountable for what comes out of my mouth over the next half an hour. Okay, I, the last thing I would want is that. I also work in, in West Bank. Now, in, in West Bank, I do a lot with cars, and so I will talk a lot about cars. And one of the great things about cars is it is a subject that unites all South Africans. We may have different religions, we may have different skin colors, we may have different creeds, Colors, everything, but we all love BMWs, don't we? It's, it's, it's a uniting factor for us all. So today, what I want to talk about three things is one, you don't wake up in the morning and be excited about buying asset finance, right? It's just not that kind of product. You get excited about buying cars. Our product is always a bundle. There's a car, there's an asset with asset finance. So I want to talk about that greater supply chain and the data within that supply chain and the advantages us as a bank and the contribute can take from that and also the contribution we can make to that supply chain. The second is you guys work with scorecards, you manage the risk of banks and that's enormously valuable. You are probably the, you hold, the, you hold more, more influence over the profitability of a bank than, than almost any other group of people. But I think there's an opportunity for scorecards to add more value to consumers and people outside the bank rather than just within banks. So I want to talk a bit about that. And then lastly, if I could be so presumptuous to say that there's limitations to your scorecards and there's a way to think differently about scorecards, and I want to chuck in a slightly different idea about that. So look, how do people buy cars? People, my argument, people don't buy cars in showrooms anymore. People pick up cars in showrooms. They buy it on the internet. All the, most of 90%, 99% of the decision-making cycle has moved online. Now this is a survey you can find, you can Google for it. Google moments in the car buying process and it will come up. And it's a survey by Google. And the stats there, people do an enormous, about three months worth, a huge amount of searching online. And, and there's a huge amount of effort that goes into that, but I also think there's a huge amount of pleasure that comes from that. I once spoke to someone who puts Wi-Fi units into taxis, and I said to him, what's the most commonly visited sites whenever you're within a taxi? They, they ban porn, so it wasn't that. Um, <laughs> it was Auto Trader, and it was Career Junction. So even if you're in a taxi, 
And look, the average dealership vehicle, the average car in auto trader is about 200K. So you think someone in a taxi can afford that car? Probably not. But they aspire to it. They, they grow to it. So it's, it's a great thing that is done with this country and something I think people enjoy doing. Now, within that process, there are, as Google put it, there's a number of key moments. Which car is best for me? Is it right for me? Can I afford it? Where should I buy it? And am I getting a good deal? Now, those all make intuitive sense, I think, to all of you. But the can I afford it? It's an absolutely critical moment. And it's one, I think, where the banks and where people in this room can make a real contribution to people understanding what they can and can't afford. To give you a view of, of scale, now this is from my broadband, and it's, if you look at these, are the most visited South African sites, okay? News24 might get more unique visitors, but look at it in terms of page views versus Autotrader and Cars.coza. Autotrader and Cars.coza in terms of page views, and that again speaks to the enormous amount of time and activity. Now imagine if you are Google. You are party to all of this information. You see all of this going on beneath your nose, and you're essentially the conductor of this activity. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? Because from that, not only can you work out the moments that occur, but also you can put products and services into those moments. And let's face it, you all thread Google last week got its second fine from the European Union, four billion. And it's more to them, that's a small amount of revenue and it's a cost of doing business. The previous find before that was when Google basically prioritized their search activities in terms of product placement and price check type activities above other people and discriminated against other companies. Again, they got a $4 billion fine. Have they changed their, their modus operandi? They, they haven't. So Google are aggressive in activities. And they sit in a process where they could easily insert products and services, banking products and services into that. Why don't they? Well, probably because of regulation. Because regulation is tough. Regulation is what banks do well. So the next time you curse your compliance people, and we all do, let's face it, is there any in the room? Hope not. Next time we curse our compliance people, they actually are our best friends. You should hug them. They, they really do benefit us because Google is sitting in a very powerful position for, for my product, which is asset finance, and they could easily insert that into the process. But that enormous amount of activity can create problems within an industry. Now, this is a sales funnel, okay? Now, if you look at the top, can you still hear me if I move away from the mic? People hear me? Right. If you look at the top of the sales funnel, aggregators, cars, that comes on traders sit there. There's a growing number of dealers building their websites and developing digital marketing tools to be able to work with those websites. CRM is they're developing leads capabilities to bring you onto the showroom floor, into the dealer management systems. These are all the different IT functions that sit within that. And then where, where banking hits the road is the finance and insurance, the dude in the back office who helps you arrange the finance, and then the contracting that sits at the end of that. Now, two to three million roughly monthly browsers. That translates through various different hurdles and approval rates to about 120,000 applications for finance per month, of which there is about 45,000 who actually buy across all of the banks. That's 70,000 total buyers if you include cash buyers. And again, you guys facilitate a lot of those cash buyers. It's access bonds, it's various other tools that are used in the cash market. But there's only 70,000 buyers. Now look at the size of the funnel at the top. Two to three million versus 70,000 at the bottom. And if you sort of put a color scheme against that, 
there's massive inefficiency in that funnel simply because even those two to three million people at the top and they're consuming resource and activity, people walking into showroom floors, I would reckon about eight out of ten conversations in the showroom floor are a waste of time for simple affordability reasons. About 60% of F&I conversations are a waste of time simply for affordability reasons. And affordability is your fault because you're the ones that are creating the scorecards that are declining customers. Wouldn't it be great if we could improve everyone and you all know why we can't? But that inefficiency is created. And so I think the, the opportunity is can we assist that supply chain to become more efficient? Because in the end, there's only one source of income to a car dealer. It's selling cars. Well, two of you include the commission he gets from those finance insurance products. But it's around the sale. So that wasted conversation in the showroom floor, that wasted conversation in the night, he earns no revenue, but you are paying for the cost of that when you buy your car. So I think there's an opportunity for the banking sector to work with the industry to make that more efficient because we are the main driver of the red segment. Now this is an American figure. I was over at Vegas at a conference recently. If you take the revenue per employee, take an Amazon average, $1.4 million versus a dealership in America, $800,000. And take the efficiency per employee. Again, that speaks to the efficiency of the conversations. Now in America, the approval rate is about 80% or 90%, whereas here it's about 40%. So I would say we're probably half of that figure. So our benchmark to productivity in a retail employee is per. And that again is a reason why we need to, to work with Consumers, we need to work with the supply chain to make that more efficient. A second way of looking at data is we looked, within West Bank, we get all the applications from the industry. It's a, it's a very privileged position. But this graph is, it's a major manufacturer and it's all the applications for their product at their franchised dealerships. So their logos at the top of the dealership. On average, that, this, that's, this franchise has got 50 different outlets, more than 50 different outlets in the greater Hauteng area. And on average, they're 13 kilometers apart. And on the average, the average person is eight kilometers from dealership. The figure in the middle is the average geographical distance between where they live and where they put in their application for finance. They drove past a number of dealerships to get to the one they put the application. And that's why I say buying takes place on the internet. 20 years ago, you drove along and you saw that branded dealership, would it be a Honda or Volvo or whatever it is, you would drive in and you would ask them for what their cars are like. Now you go online, you do your research, you know exactly what car, down to the piece of metal in the color that you saw it, and you drive to it. The change in dynamic is something I don't think the industry has adjusted to because they still have a mindset. If you're McDonald's, you don't drive it your way from McDonald's. You drive along Bayes and Day, and there's a McDonald's there and you pull in. So being in the right geographic space, being high profile, is an important part of your shop placement. But does, and, uh, and 20 years ago, vehicle manufacturing or vehicle sales was the same. But is it today? And I think data has got a great contribution to help understand if those dealerships, do you need as many of them? Because again, that floor space, where are dealerships? They're in major retail locations. They're in Besnadir Drive near Cresta. They're outside the Mall of Africa. Those are major retail, expensive real estate, not cheap real estate. And again, there's only one source of income. That's you. Because when you buy a car, you're paying for all of that real estate as well. So I think the opportunity to re-engineer those supply chains to be more efficient 
sits with data at its heart, and the banking data is a major contributor to that. Last stat on this is that when a manufacturer, you've all heard of just-in-time manufacturing. Manufacturers have a fine art that the bolt is manufactured at the right time to arrive at the factory, and minutes later it's on the car in order that to be the most efficient supply chain. They share data through those supply chains, and it's a wonderful art and a wonderful science that all of those Japanese manufacturers and German manufacturers are fantastic at. And they worry about the efficiency of that process. Then they sell it to a dealership, and what happens next? On average in South Africa, it sits on the dealership floor for six weeks. Now, why did you worry about the bolt and how many minutes it took to go on the car? The minute it goes out the floor, it sits there for six weeks. We finance that as a West Bank. We call it a floor plan, and all the banks have floor plans. And yes, it's a source of income for us, but it's a source of inefficiency, because while that car sits there for six weeks, again, it's accumulating costs. Now, if you have an understanding of the top of the funnel and the leads coming through those funnels, again, surely is an opportunity to make sure you can get closer to best practice. This best practice is actually we buy cars. They buy a car, they sell a car within a week and they do it in one showroom for the whole of Hauteng. Now think of the cost saving in itself of being able to do that. If I have six cars sitting on my floor, I need six parking spaces for it. I pay per meter square for that parking space. If I have one car and it's in and out in a week, and then another car sits in that space the next week and the next thing the next week, again, it's a more efficient model. And we buy cars is exploiting that. It's an enormously innovative business model. I'll flick through those. Second part of what I want to talk about is the opportunity for scorecards to add value. They add huge value for banks because you manage the risk of the banks. But can they add value to the people that you serve, the customers that you serve? Now, this is a tool that we have created in, in West Bank. Now, to understand if can you afford it, you can fill in a banking application. A banking application, on average, we looked at it all across the different banks, 100 to 140 lines long. Try filling that in on a mobile device. You need to have the patience of Job to be able to do it. It's almost impossible. You need to really want that car to be able to do that. So what we aimed to do was how few fields can we do that with? And we got it down to five different fields, gross and net income and the ID number. Those are the three that we actually need. We then wanted your cell phone number and your email address. We didn't really need them. We just wanted good contact details because we do have to sell things in the end. So therefore, we got it down to that. Now, you guys love your scorecards. And yes, they're great things. And yes, the more data you can put into that scorecard, the more data fields you look at, the more accurate. I get that. But on the other hand, you can't ask a customer for that amount of data and expect them to enjoy the process. Car, buying a car is a beautiful thing, filling in all the paperwork, and you've all experienced this. That's not a beautiful thing. In fact, that makes it a horrible thing. If we want people to buy more cars, make it a beautiful thing. Now again, those scorecard needs lots of data, but you guys are experts in finding data from different sources. Do it for the customer, and that's essentially the trick we used in this. We went through all the different data sources we could use, and we filled it in for the customer. So the scorecard is as rigorous at the back end, but it didn't have to put the onus on the customer at the front end. The second innovation that I would encourage you to think about is that when you create a scorecard, it's essentially a very good way of saying nil, right? Because I come and I want this car and it's 300,000 rand and I want a 30% balloon, I want a 0% deposit, can I have it? You say no. Okay. 25% balloon, no. 35% balloon, no. 
10% balloon, no. And it keeps going like that. Because a scorecard is designed to say yes or no. But that's not really the question. What if the question was, what can I get? And essentially what we created here is we put it in little sliders, and you can move each sliders along for all of the different variables. So we asked the scorecard several hundred questions to say what deals you can get. So this is the universe of all the things I will say yes to. And essentially using the same technology, but it's turning around and asking the question in a different way. And when we can't give a deal, again, the figure at the top, which is slightly blurred for you, which is the amount that you're asking for, then I'll go and find the amount we would have approved. So essentially, your scorecard can add value. It can add advice to a customer. It can say, this is what you can do, rather than what you do at the minute, is saying, nope, 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 you guessed right, then I'll give you a yes. So essentially, ask a different question of your scorecard, and it can add a lot more value to the consumer. Second way of looking at it is when a customer comes and asks for debt, you've got these wonderful models and lots of variables within it and you apply regression models and all sorts of models to it that I vaguely don't understand even, but I look knowledgeable whenever you try to explain it to me. You know, they're great, but on the other hand, as a customer, what, what do I need to do to get debt? You've got rules. What are those rules? Give me advice on what I should be doing right in order that you'll give me the answer that I want, which is a yes. Now, this is a tool that FMB launched recently, and under NAV, Yolandi, who spoke to you earlier, is the NAV CEO. This is, this is one of the toys that she has created. And it's basically a tool to give you an explanation of what your credit status is and give you advice on how you can improve your credit status, and it uses a red, amber, green to be able to do that. Because to get debt, it's got fairly simple rules. And these rules, if someone came and asked us for money, as you as a person, a family member came to us, these are the sort of things that you'd actually think about. It's quite intuitive. Take away all your different complicated models, this is actually quite intuitive. If you've got debt already, and you're paying that debt, where's the little pointy thing? Is that it? Yay, cool. <laughs> I got pointy thing. Right, if you've got debt already, then, and you're paying it off, then yeah, that's good. Because you're, you're personally, you're meeting all your current obligations. But if you've got too much of it, then that's going to become a burden, and maybe you should think twice about even asking. If you've taken a lot out recently, get used to paying that. Make sure you can pay it. Make sure you can fit it into your monthly budget before you take any more. So if a person has taken a lot of debt out recently, you guys are nervous about it, quite rightly, because they're probably in trouble. And that's intuitively the way you need to think about it. Also, do you pay your other commitments? Your photocom bill, your DSTV bill, all those things that come back from the Bureau. Because if you're the sort of person who meets their commitments, who meets their contractual obligations, you're the sort of person I want to do business with. And look, have you had a lot of debt in the past? Do you understand how this whole system works? How many years it lasts for? If you have a good track record, then that's good. But again, that's a common sense explanation to the science that you have in the background. It's turning a scorecard around and making it into common language and things that people understand. And if you explain to somebody the rules of rugby, it actually makes sense and it becomes a beautiful game. Other than that, it looks at a bunch of very big guys trying to beat the shit out of each other, all right? You need to understand the rules before you can enjoy the game. And it's the same with almost any sport, and it's the same with debt as well. But one thing I'd caution about all of this 
If you, the old adage, the more debt you have, the more you can get. That is true. When you look at those rules, that is true. And if you look at the social problems that this country faces, economic inclusion is a huge social issue. Getting people into the economic cycle so that they can have debt is a huge problem. It's a huge opportunity as well. But if, you're, if your model is going to say, well, you have to have had lots of debt in the past in order to be able to give it, you've created a structural problem, which means that people are left out. And they feel left out. And you're hearing noise in the market about it. And so I think the burden on a South African bank, and it could be the rest of Africa, not a big expert in the rest of Africa, but could be, is you've got to start thinking differently. Now, this is a very crass example. Do you know who these people are? Okay. This is Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne. This is Ozzy Osbourne. Who didn't know who Ozzy Osbourne was? Go on, own up. Ozzy Osbourne was a, was a god of rock and roll, or rock, or heavy metal, back in the 70s and 80s. More famously now known for being the husband of Sharon Osbourne, rather than himself. But they were actually born a few weeks apart in, 1990, in 1948. They are certainly upper income. They all, both own property in central London, and they've both, ironically, been married twice. Now, from a scorecard point of view, if you call the Bureau, these two people might look very much alike. But from a personality perspective, they're very, very different. Now, in your office, next time you're sitting bored in a meeting, and you're in actuarial meetings, I, I just assume that that happens, okay? <laughs> look at the people around you. And look at the difference between those people. A lot of them live in Santon or Ravonia in the northern suburbs. And from a scorecard perspective, they not look the same. And, and whenever someone comes and asks you for money as a person, do you run a scorecard against them? No, you don't. You use your intuition, you use your personality, and you use the, what you know about that person to do it. And I was in the talk yesterday, Jacques Salou, the FNB CEO, was talking about the, the huge strides we made from branch managers making credit decisions through the scorecards and the sophistication of banking today. And yes, that's a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. But the thing that that branch manager had is he knew the person. And when no data existed, or less data existed, or the data said something different, because he knew the person, he can make different decisions. And so, one of the things I want you to think about is, is what would happen if you knew the person. Now, to give an example of where personality profile can be quite powerful, back to our friend Donald Trump. Why or how on earth did he win? The easy example is the world has gone mad, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Yes, the world has gone mad, and you could think that all Americans are a bit, yeah, they are. But how did he win? And what is the science? So it was one of the projects I set myself over last Christmas is, is there has to be something more to this. And it turns out there is a story. Now, how influential this was is a matter of speculation. But there is a story and there is a science behind this. Start off by stealing 50 million Facebook profiles. Okay? Now, that was the scandal that came to light recently. Yes, they did steal 50 million Facebook profiles. And that's had a huge ripple effect. Last week, Mark Zuckerberg lost 20 billion rand, 20 billion, not 20 billion rand, 20 billion dollars of his wealth. I really do feel sorry for him. 20 billion, it's a lot of money, but he still has about 100 left, so don't feel too sorry for him. <laughs> Add in a piece of science, and this is real. Apply magic sauce, go, go Google it. 
It's a piece of research that came out of Cambridge University. And what it does is tries to take your Facebook likes and build a personality profile for you. Now, I happen to like Lady Gaga, and that gives you fascinating results whenever you look at it on the other side, okay? But that aside, it is interesting. Go and take a look. And then add a very dodgy company, and this is the one that was in the news, Cambridge Analytica. Very dodgy company, very dodgy shareholders, but they really were the scientific power the behind it and the brains that went behind it. And what they basically do is try to translate from your Facebook profile, and the Trump campaign had other means. They used to go out, they had an app, and when they went door to door, and door to door is a big part of elections over there, again, they would ask personality profile questions and try and personality. They want to know who you are as a person. And the personality model is very basic. Again, it's, it's, it's all over the internet. You can look it up. There's lots of research on it. And it basically looks to say, for example, openness to experience. Are you the curious type? Are you the cautious type? Are you the sensitive and nervous type? Are these the cure and confident type? Are you outgoing energetic? Are you more reserved? They tried to understand what it is. And why did they do that? Hyper-segmentation. Every message that Trump put out, this is a quote from one of the Cambridge Analytica people before they all went quiet after the scandal. Pretty much every message that Trump put out was data-driven. On the day of the third presidential debate between Trump and Clinton, Trump's team tested 175,000 different ad variations for his arguments. Now, why does that make? Take the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is gun control. Now, if you're in Texas, gun control is about concealed carry because you want your rifle in the back of your bucket, right? That's a big Texan thing. Whereas in California, a much more liberal and left-wing state, gun control is about having a gun in your house in case there's a intruder in your house. So once you understand the personality of that individual, you're able to frame a gun control message to the way that you want to receive it. And that becomes quite powerful. So instead of going broad brush, which is what the Clinton campaign did, they went in very focused segmentation. And because of Facebook leaving the back door open, they were able to do it and touch a lot of people. And then add in those Russian bots, that amplified message, and the ability to share message among everyone on Facebook, you might actually have something. The messages differed in many different ways, but they were targeting the recipients in the optimum psychological way. Go and do your research. It's actually fascinating. But it got me thinking, the power of personality. If I could understand the personality of a person, would I lend to them, would I not lend to them? If I could understand the personality of the person, would it change how I offer the marketing message I give to them or the product that I offer to them in terms of a propensity model? How powerful is this personality thing? Because your scorecards look backwards. They don't look at me today. Social media, if you can get your hands on the data, and Facebook really have closed that down, thankfully, then is an opportunity to understand me as a person. If you look at what I like, what I follow, what I pause and all the rest, they do have a better understanding of me as a person than most people would do. How you do it, I don't have an answer to that question. But I'm saying that understand people as individuals, as an opportunity in this country, and it's something your scorecards are not doing because they're looking at behaviors in the past not me as I am today. So that's my pulpit summary for now. Any questions? Was I brief? Yes, I was. Alan, that was extremely insightful. Thank you so much. Um, does anyone have any questions for Alan?
Well, you all want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs>